This episode is sponsored by independent Swiss luxury watchmaker Ulysse Nardon. Ulysse Nardon has continuously reset the boundaries of watch engineering and design thanks to its long-established technical excellence and its unconventional approach to watchmaking. To find out more, visit ulysse-nardon.com. That's U-L-Y-S-S-E-N-A-R-D-I-N.com. Ulysse Nardon. You're listening to The Luxury Item, the podcast on the business of luxury and the people and companies that are shaping the future of the luxury industry. Here's your host, Scott Kerr. My guest on The Luxury Item is Jeff Lottman, CEO and owner of Fred Siegel, Los Angeles' iconic fashion brand. The Fred Siegel name has been synonymous with Los Angeles style since the early 1960s, originating a laid-back look at an upscale price point and becoming one of the first local boutiques to draw tourists, celebrities, and paparazzi. During the 2000s, paparazzi magnets such as Paris Hilton and Lindsay Lohan could be spotted leaving his stores carrying the iconic white, blue, and red shopping bags. It's had movie shout-outs in films like Clueless, Legally Blonde, and Less Than Zero. Jeff is also the CEO of Global Icons, the world's largest independent full-service corporate brand licensing agency with offices in Los Angeles, Detroit, London, and Hong Kong. Jeff, who started Global Icons a little more than 25 years ago, is an expert in branding, marketing, and licensing. He has built an impressive career as a brand strategist. The company's clients include Lamborghini, Citroën, Opel, Vespa, United States Postal Service, Silk, Twinkies, and others. Global Icons acquired Fred Siegel's fashion brand in stores in 2018, and under Jeff Lottman's leadership, it plans to develop the U.S. retailer worldwide. Welcome to the luxury item, Jeff. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Yeah, so glad you can join me. You know, I think a great place to start is to share with my global listeners who may not be familiar with the iconic Los Angeles luxury retailer, Fred Siegel, the backstory of this unique 60-year-old brand and how it became part of the cultural conversation. Sure, thank you. Fred Siegel's an incredible brand, and it really started with an incredible guy. There really was a Fred Siegel, and he really was originally a, um, a tailor of sorts, and that from that, he had an interesting idea. He took a pair of Levi's, which at the time was selling for $9.95, and sold it for $29.95 by taking the jeans and flaring the top and really adding, like, bedazzling it and so on and so forth. And then what's interesting he also created influencer culture because he then went across the street to the bar called PJ's and he gave it to all the people that work there. And people are like, oh my God, where'd you get those cool jeans from? And they went over there at Fred Siegel. And it really started. And then from there, the whole fashion jeans category took off. He then created the first denim bar. And then from there, it really became all these other shops and shops that all got added in, in the Melrose. And that was sort of the beginning of what Fred Siegel was. So enter your corporate brand licensing agency, Global Icons, in 2018 to acquire a majority stake in Fred Siegel with an eye on licensing the brand and expanding retail. You know, you were Fred Siegel's, I don't know, third owner since 2012. What, yes. was, the, yeah, what was the state of the brand at the time of the buyout? Well, currently there really was the flagship store in, on Sunset at Sunset in La Cienica. And at the same time, there was a, a, a store that was about to open up in Korea. And uh, there was a store that was getting very soon to be opening in Malibu, which has now since opened. But beyond that, that pretty much was it. But I really approached this as a licensor. And we had a deal. This is all pre-pandemic. 
with a partner in Canada to open up 12 stores. We had a, a deal with a partner in Japan to open up at least four to six stores. We were talking to someone in Dubai. We actually even spoke to a hotel concept in Thailand. But the one I was the most excited about and really still believe would be the biggest potential was to have a Fred Siegel branded cannabis line. And if you think about it, we really own 60s and 70s culture. That's sort of the, the heart of Fred Siegel. Right. And in that, when you think about the whole cannabis culture, there really is no national brands that are out there. There's one or two that are now starting to get there. But four years ago, there were no national brands. And the ability for us as a retailer then to advertise the product in our stores, but at the same time, then having it being sold elsewhere, I thought it had great potential. And we had a deal that was a ginormous deal on the table with guarantees. And then, of course, at COVID, everything all fell apart. Yeah. And I had to become a retailer, which was a definitely challenging situation because I had no retail background. How did you envision breathing new life into the Fred Siegel brand that for a lot of young people, it's not on their, even on their register? So basically, to begin with, we, we have to look at Fred Siegel, and it has multiple customers. The primary is really 25 to 35, 35 to 45. But obviously, we still have a very large audience, the 18 to 25, and then old people like me that go beyond the, the 45 to 55. And what we do is we really look at bringing those different customers, different types of product. And what made Fred Siegel so great and why it always became the place to shop is that it was a discovery store. They always had new and upcoming brands. And a lot of brands were birthed, says Fred Siegel. We call them season zero brands. And what's funny, brands like Kate Spade, True Religion, Hard Candy, and others were all brought and started at Fred Siegel. And we try to do that still now. We're always having new brands at Fred Siegel. And I think by doing that, that's what really keeps it fresh and exciting. And not long ago, after the first wave of the COVID-19 pandemic, you announced expansion plans, including the rollout of, I think, 20 new physical stores by this year, with plans to open new spaces across the United States, as well as in Asia and Europe. How did the pandemic impact your growth plans? Like many companies in the same dilemma, did you have to do a pivot to e-commerce and other digital strategies? Oh, 100%. And like I said earlier, I also had to learn what being a retailer was and how right. that really worked because it wasn't really my background. I mean, it was a whole different experience, even though my grandfather actually owned a chain of, of uh, convenience stores or five and dime stores back before the depression. That's about as close as I ever got to a retail operation. <laughs> but it, the pandemic definitely made us rethink who we are, who our customer is, and really figure out what is the right size of a store. And our flagship is a 12,000 square foot store but some of the new stores that we're rolling out are much smaller. And we really figured how to give that whole Fred Siegel experience, which is a multi-brand experience, which is a big part of who we are um, in those small stores. And by doing that, we feel like we can really create this really cool vibe and still keep what Fred Siegel is. Did it also dampen telling the reimagined Fred Siegel story to consumers the way you originally intended? No, it didn't really do that, but it definitely made us rethink and put start putting a lot more money in Ecom. When I first acquired the company, there was a website, but it was pretty nascent. It sort of was there because they had to have something up. It wasn't did not drive that much revenue. And since then, we've well, I think quadrupled it. Which of course is easy when you're starting from a low number. But it's really gotten to be a pretty significant part of the the our business, and it's going to become probably somewhere between fifteen to twenty in the next couple of years. So that's how big it's growing. You know, in a piece on Fred Siegel that ran in the LA Times a couple of years ago, a prominent retail developer said in the article that founder Fred Siegel, quote unquote, had the vision to create this space with all this energy and excitement around it. It was about mixing different categories together that people had never done. It was about connecting the inside and the outside, and it was the collection of different vendors. 
So how are you capturing the same energy and excitement in today's Fred Siegel? Well, honestly, we haven't strayed too far from that. We have many different departments in the store to begin with, besides men and women's apparel, we have an eyewear department. We also have a very strong gift department. And then recently, um, we really, our vintage has really blown up, which has been become a really big part of who we are. And it also then goes towards sustainability and environmental, which are things that really matter a lot to us as a company. So we've always had a handful of different vendors, be them, you know, brands that are up and coming or brands that are, um, that are brand new. And at the same time, we even have a, a coffee store in the Sunset Store, Matt Black Coffee is our coffee partner. And it's just really, you know, we have a lot of things that are going on. And then last, we have these two pop-up spaces. We have a small one and a big one. And the small one, we activate, oh my God, almost every other week or sometimes at least every month. And a new brand is showcased in there all the time. So the Sunset location is home to many different pop-ups that promote various brands. So how does an undiscovered brand get stocked in Fred Siegel? Do they have to pitch you or does your team scout them out? Well, it really comes from a lot of different places. I mean, definitely people come to us and I get things through LinkedIn um, or on my email and, and that's fine. And then I pass them really to the buyers. We have a head buyer named Ashley. She's in charge of all merchandise. Chelsea's the men's buyer. But we also really go after things that we really like that are very cool. And that can come from anywhere. As a matter of fact, there was a great brand that I saw when I was traveling in Europe called Eleventy. And I called them up literally when I was in Europe and going, hey, I really want to in Fred Siegel. Ended up speaking to the owner the next day. He responded to my email. And two months later, their product was in our store. And it's done very well in the men's department. We also think that even my daughters, one who's 20, one who's 21, they're always suggesting brands too. So it's really about coming from a lot of different places. But I'd say that it's probably a good 70% of us going after and 30% of we actually, well, a lot of brands come to us, but only about 30% do we take. It's got to meet certain criteria. You know, one of the many things that put Fred Siegel on the fashion map was its famous denim bar, which first came onto the scene in the early 60s. You know, it bucked conventional trends and many credit Fred Siegel with pioneering the designer denim craze. Last year, you relaunched the denim bar in all of your locations. Can you talk about the new jean bar, what's different and what you're doing to make an appealing destination and experience? Sure. So as I said before, he did create the fashion jean. Um, and he definitely also created and, and had the very first denim bar. And when I bought the company, I was surprised that the denim bar wasn't something that we really had. And I really felt that as a brand, it was truly unique. And that we had, you know, when you have authenticity and you have something like that with the history of doing that, to not using that as a way to expand to make sense to me as a brand guy, because that's really what I am. So I really wanted to re-envision that. And what we've done so far is we have one in our uh, flagship store. And we've been using that as a model and it's really a test model and allows us to look at shelving and lighting and how to put the displays in and and we keep on tweaking and keep on tweaking it but we're our goal is that i'm hoping to have at least one or two next year and then after that i expect it to really take off because where do you buy cool jeans it, there is no place i mean unless right. you go to a department store where do you go find it and um we have a great line of about 40 different brands men and women's everything from you know entry level to these thousand dollar jeans that are really crazy stitched together that people also buy. So I want to talk a little bit about Global Icons. You started your licensing business a little over 25 years ago. How did you get into that business and what was the original focus of Global Icons? 
Well, it's funny. I ended up falling into licensing, which everybody does. Nobody ever wakes up and goes, <laughs> oh my God, I want to be in the licensing business because it is the most misunderstood business in the world. And for me, I was trying to get the rights to recreate um, deceased Hollywood celebrities in, a, in an animated project. I was trying to, I mistakenly wanted to take and recreate Hollywood celebrities in brand new movies in a way that would be perfectly photoreal. And remember, this is now, it was that was 27 years ago, because that yeah. was before I started Global Icons. And as you know, they're just now doing right. it today with what just happened with Harrison Ford. So I met with, there were two companies that represented really all the estates of the celebrities. And people like, you know, Bogart and Dietrich and Gable and W.C. Fields and um, uh, John Wayne and Meryl Monroe. Of course, unfortunately, most people don't even know them anymore. I mean, I do, but, you know, my girls only know a handful of them. And that's because of, you know, how many people I've represented. And in getting those rights, one of the characters, actually one of my favorite, James Cagney, his person said to me, well, look, sure, I'll give you the rights to recreate Jimmy on stage, but you also have to represent me too. And I'm like, huh, what? Well, those people that run it are, are basically, they're, they're lawyers and they're not necessarily marketing people. And it's just really, to me, it seemed like a really great place to go after. And I'm like, okay. So really it was James Cagney that made me get into Global Icons, which I was kind of cool being the fact he was my favorite actor, which still is my favorite Hollywood actor. And um, he sort of drove me into the company. So when we started the company 27 years ago, it became obvious that the, the whole category of deceased celebrity licensing was really going out. And licensing is huge. It's $150 billion a year industry. And the first biggest category, of course, is entertainment. The second biggest category is brand. Brand's about $40 billion. Entertainment's like $60 billion. But dead celebrity licensing is like $100 million. Mm -hmm. So when you think about where do you want to go, you always want to fish where the fish are. So I, I made a pivot because, again, I, I came out of the food business before I started Global Icons, working with people like McDonald's and Kraft and others, and became very brand sensitive. And I went, we should go on the corporate branding. And that's sort of how the company pivoted to that area. We'll be right back after a quick break with more of my conversation with Jeff Lottman. A pioneer in innovative technologies and the use of high-tech materials such as silicium, Ulysse Nardin is one of the few integrated watch manufacturers with the expertise to produce its own high-precision components and movements. In 2001, the brand changed the face of watchmaking by launching the Freak, Freak led a counter-revolution to traditional watchmaking and reshaped the art of horology. Today, Ulysse Nardin remains devoted to its quest for watchmaking perfection through four collections, Freak, Blast, Diver, and Marine. We're back with more from Jeff Lottman. So when targeting brands for building Global Icon's portfolio, what are some of the criteria you look for in these brands before acquiring, buying the rights? Well, we always look for who is number one in a category, and it even could be in a very specific small category. It doesn't have to be a huge category. And what's great about that, when you have that, those brands tend to have expansion and the ability to go into different places. And that's really what we first look for. And also, we look for things that are lifestyle brands, you know, things that really are really significant and have sort of part of the zeitgeist. We used to represent... Um, Ford for a long time, and we worked on the Mustang brand, and that is truly a lifestyle brand. There's a lot of cars that aren't lifestyle brands, but clearly Mustang is. We represent Lamborghini. That's obviously a lifestyle brand. Triumph is a lifestyle brand. It talks about the ruggedness of motorcycles. So we try to look for brands that really mean something, even like Hostess, which has become a really big client for ours. 
I mean, they really own that whole snack category. And people used to think, oh my God, it wasn't good for you. But you know what? People like occasionally eat things that aren't good for them. And if you want it, you want it. And it's a great category. We've done really well with them. So does Global Icons have a specific brand building model when it comes to marketing strategies, product development, and the use of data? Oh, 100%. We call it concentric circles. And it's as simple as, you know, what product would be the closest to the core of the brand you're working on and then where it goes from there. So I'll give you a perfect example. So again, coming back to Ford for a second. So we used to do a lot of, you know, Ford Mustang t-shirts and Ford Mustang toys and Ford Mustang games. And, but we thought that there really was a potential to create what was called the man cave category. And back then it really didn't exist. And that's when people were spending a lot of money and rebuilding their garages. So we then went and we talked to someone that made this great garage flooring. And we talked to someone that made this great storage equipment and someone that made tools. And we went out and convinced them all to take the Ford brand. And they started creating that as a lifestyle, that whole man cave category. And then once we had that working, we're like, okay, now the next area is we should then talk about what also can you put in the man cave. And then we went into compressors and generators and car washers. And that's what I'm talking about. You got to build from one thing to another to another. You can't just go, oh my God, generators. No, you have to really get consumers to the ability to see why a Ford generator makes sense. And of course you say with trucks, you know, it's the, the most durable truck there is. Of course it would make sense. But even so, you got to take things piece by piece. So what percent of Global Icon's business is domestic here in the U.S. and what percent is international? You know, it used to be um, very strongly domestic, but our, our Europe business has really done great. I'd say probably we're 55, 45 or no more than 60, 40 domestic versus Europe. We have offices around the world. We're home offices based in Los Angeles. We have an office in Detroit. Or we have another large office in London. We have a person. We have an office in Germany, an office in Italy, an office in um, France. We also have an office in Hong Kong. Um, we have an office in Miami, and we were about to open up one in China, in Shenzhen, but we're waiting for the Chinese economy to sort of like stabilize again, because that's a big part of our business, because a lot of categories we work in are home electrics or things that are made in China. So it's great to be that close to a factory, then you can make sure things are made right and quality control and so on and so forth. You know, it seems the thirst for nostalgia fueled by Gen Z and celebrities has led many once forgotten brands to take major strides to bring forth a fresh wave of relevancy in their own creative spaces. Brands like Diesel, Crocs, Birkenstock, Champion, just to name a few. Your company, Global Icons, has rebirthed some great brands like Vespa, Triumph, Hostess, as we mentioned before, and others. So while young people have become hardwired for nostalgia, there are pitfalls that await brands that treat nostalgia like it's an easy shortcut to emotional connection. Consumers pick up on that pretty quickly. How do you approach nostalgia with your stable of brands so you don't fall into that trap? Well, there's a couple of things. To begin with, when we started Global Icons, the category of what I call new vintage um, was just starting. And it was really funny. We kept on waiting for that trend to go away because it seemed like, okay, we're doing all these like old ads on t-shirts and things like that, but it never really went. And I think that people like nostalgia because it goes back to a point in time. But for us with Fred Siegel, it's not, we don't lean into the nostalgia that much. I mean, sure, that's who we are and what our background is and heritage. And the nice thing is because we started in the 60s, we can play in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s. But it's really our authenticity and as our authenticity of always being this very chic place in Los Angeles, that really, we really were the place that blended casual luxury in a way that really made it intrinsically LA. 
And that was the same thing that we've always really continued doing all this time. So it's that authenticity that we really own and the fact that we've always been there. Um, and then, of course, we do lean into nostalgia at certain times and we bring back brands like we brought back Camp Beverly Hills a couple of years ago, which was a huge brand in the 80s. Um, it was doing actually close to $100 million back then. And we brought it back and it just did incredibly well. So we're always looking to bring back other cool brands too and revive them. You were talking about the brand licensing business before. And one time you said brand licensing is the most misunderstood industry out there. Why is that? People just don't understand it. And if you say to someone, I'm in licensing, they're like, huh? And, oh yeah, I get it. And I can't tell you how many CMOs I've been in boardrooms where they think they understand what the real benefit to licensing is. And they don't really understand what the real benefit is. And they don't understand really what licensing is. And it's the ability to take an IP and expand it with a manufacturer that wants to use their logo or product, wants something, and then go sell it. But it's not just about the money. The beauty of licensing is that it really connects with a customer. Because if you think about it, if you think about advertising overall, anything, be it online or print or TV or radio, it has that wall between you and that advertising. But the beauty of licensing is that when you do something and you put a logo on it and a consumer can take it home and they can touch it, they can wear it, they can use it, they can put their baby in it in the case of a stroller, which we've done plenty of stroller deals. That's the incredible part about licensing. And people don't understand that's the great thing is that you can connect with a customer directly in their home and no other form of advertising can do that. Fred Siegel is your foray into the retail game. So what has it been like so far and what have you learned? Oh my God. I don't think there's enough time to talk about everything I've learned <laughs> because I was starting from a zero base. Um, and besides that, of course, I could easily say retail is hard. Um, and, and it is because look, you need to be, you want to be up on what's cool and you want to make sure that when the hot leather jacket that's in pink is right now, Barbie, that you have a lot of Barbie jackets and you try to chase into things. But what, what I really learned is, is what consumers really want are things that are wearable and things that they can use again and things that are more classic. And they like to have fun fashion items, but at the same idea, what they want are things that are more accessible. And we try to have the range of both. And by doing that, that's really when really works well, because again, because we are a discovery brand, because we're not just one brand, we have over 150 brands in our store, we can offer all different things to different customers. Last year, Fred Siegel launched its first in-house collection inspired by the various communities that make up Los Angeles. Can you talk about that collection? And why did you feel the time was right to attach the Fred Siegel name to a fashion line? We really wanted to build out the Fred Siegel brand. People love the brand. And we do a fair amount of what I call logo merch. So when you walk in and you went to the Hard Rock Cafe and there's Hard Rock Cafe London and Hard Rock Cafe Paris. So we obviously, we've been selling a lot of that and we continue to sell just standard Fred Siegel sweatshirts or also Fred Siegel Malibu or Fred Siegel Sunset. Um, but we wanted to expand beyond that because clearly our customers wanted that. And we, when we went there, we said, okay, well, how are we going to launch it? And because we do love LA and we always want to make sure that LA is a big part of it, we thought the idea of showcasing these great neighborhoods and great street names would be a really cool thing to do. And the things that also really matter to us is it also had to be sustainable and it also had to be made in Los Angeles. So we found this great vendor, um, a manufacturer in LA, and we sorted, literally started off with the cotton and we had a cotton blended for us that was a blend of organic cotton and recycled cotton. And that became the base for our product. And everything then was spun into fabric, which is pretty cool. He actually has a spinning facility also in LA, which is kind of good. 
interesting to be there. And it was spun and then it's cut and sewn and, and assembled all in Los Angeles. So all these things really mattered to us because I really felt like this is what who we are. And it really connected with people and it really gave back to LA. The other area, of course, that's done really well is this whole found by Fred Siegel, which is a brand that we created. And the found by Fred Siegel really digs into the whole vintage area. And we had showcased specifically um, designer outfits, be it for men or women. And the other area that we've done really strongly in is the whole designer resale bag business. And it's really great because we go out and we, we've identified great vendors and we have companies that then certify the bags because there's so many fakes out there. But our bags actually come with a certificate that guarantees that if you ever find it's fake, you're always to get, you always will get your money back by a third-party vendor. It's not even us writing the check. It's the company that certified it, which is write the check, which is pretty cool. And at the same time, we sell a lot of um, you know, vintage watches too. How much of your business do you want to generate from your in-house brand? I think 40% would really feel good to me. I don't think I'd really want to become 70 or 80%. I don't think I'd want to become the majority because it certainly wouldn't be true to who we are. I mean, we are a discovery brand. We are a multi-brand retailer. And the one thing you learn in licensing and the one thing you learn in brand marketing, you got to stay true to your core. And it's very hard when you make a pivot. And when a customer sees you the way, one way, and you try to go another, it, it doesn't get you anywhere. I'll give you a really quick analogy. In the beginning of my business at Global Icons, we used to represent W.C. Fields, which most people probably don't know, but he was a cantankerous, his character was a cantankerous drinker that hated kids. That was all part of his shtick. That's what he did. Oh, I can't stand it. Right. That was W.C. Fields. And the family, who I love, they're really great kids, really great, the sons of uh, W.C., said, no, my dad really liked kids. And you really need to go tell people that they like kids. And we should try doing kid-friendly product. And I'm like, Ron, who was the <laughs> son of the W.C., there's not enough money in the world to take someone who is clearly his whole, his whole thing was, I don't like kids. They bother me. Oh, get out of here, kid. You bother me. That was W.C. Field. So to then tell everybody wrong, he really should go the other direction. It doesn't work. Fred Siegel opened its first East Coast location here in New York City with a pop-up in Soho this past holiday season. Did it just feature your private label collection, Neighborhoods, or were there other items too? We, it featured Neighborhoods, and it also featured um, our vintage. And then we did a couple pop-ups, and it really was a test to figure out what was the right mix of where we're going to go for New York City, because it's a really strong market for us. Um, in our e-commerce, our second largest market, uh, or not obviously, but it's our second largest market outside of California. And it did really great. And what it told us is that, yes, we need to be there. The same way we did a pop-up in Hamptons, and we killed it. I mean, it was just, I couldn't believe how much we sold in like two months. But we're out looking for the right location. We may have identified it. And maybe one day, I would expect it will be in New York at some point, but I can't announce it at the moment. But it's a great market. And let's face it, you know, New York fashion so many of our products that we carry are, you know, are born and created in New York. So it only makes sense that we should be a part of it. In the past, there were few avenues for rising fashion and retail brands to reach consumers. You could do a little advertising or pray that an editor would write about you. Now that power lies with consumers, platforms like TikTok are driving buzz around new products and revitalizing brands' popularity with younger audiences. How are you making Fred Siegel part of the social media conversation? Well, this is, again has been a learning experience for myself and a learning experience for the company. Um, when we first, when I, again, when I first acquired it, our um, social media was pretty nascent. Our Instagram was like there, but not really. And we've really gotten really good at honing it and really giving consumers what they're looking for. And it's a combination of 
They like to see cool clothes. They also like to see cool clothes worn different places. And because we're vintage, they like when we show throwback shots of LA in the 60s or 70s or 80s. And by really doing that, that started building the vibe. And of course, we also showcase all the events that we do in our store. So every time there's a new event, and I think last year we did literally 80 of them, that every one of those events are showcased on Instagram. And of course, by doing that, those events that we're doing and those brands that we're working with also showcase us. So that really became something really significant. And so because of it, our following has really grown and it's all organic. I mean, we've never, we're willing to buy anything. I don't believe in that. It really has to be true people. But honestly, and social media is driving 40% of our web traffic. It really drives an awful lot to our website um, of which we get literally over 100,000 visitors a month. It's crazy. So why do you think Fred Siegel's DNA is relevant for 2023 and beyond? As I said earlier, it goes back to our authenticity. You go to Fred Siegel because you want to look cool. I mean, that's the beauty of the brand. You know, I'll tell you a funny story. When I, before I bought Fred Siegel and I was working in Global Icons, as I mentioned before, I have two daughters. And they used to call me dorky dad all the time. Like, dad, what are you wearing? How do you go out like that? Don't you see what you're wearing? And I'm like, well, it didn't really matter what I wore. I mean, I'm a licensing guy. It's not like people are going to be picking on what I'm wearing. It's more about what I'm saying and what we're doing. And on top of it, I'm colorblind. So I can't see blue and purple. So it's very hard for me to distinguish the difference. But since I'm involved with Fred Siegel, and because my girls really pushed me into it, I'm now wearing thick glasses and I'm wearing black t-shirts. I'm even wearing jewelry. And I wouldn't say I'm cool, but trust me, I'm a lot less dorky. And that's the beauty about Fred Siegel. You go in there because you want to look cool. And we don't call our people salespeople. They're stylists. And that's really what they're trained to do. It's trained to help people look great. And at the same time, they're willing to say, mm, yeah, that's not for you. And people realize that they're really being honest. Also, at the same time, we've also brought in a whole most a mix of some really great brands in women's everything from Melina, um, uh, Bergver, to Tove, to Awake Mode, to Dark Shadow, which is Rick Owens, and in men in Wales, and Boner, Dark Shadow, and Mason Margiela, and Hartfeld, and, and Massimo Alba. So these are things that are really, we always have to stay out there with great brands. And that's also going to keep people coming back to our store. Jeff, my final question is the luxury item question, which I ask all my guests. So if you were stranded on a deserted island and you could only have one luxury item with you, what would that luxury item be? It can't be any form of air or water transportation to get you off that island or anything that requires mobile service. You can call somebody off that island. It's just you, lots of sand, lots of palm trees, lots of ocean. What would that one single luxury item you would like to have with you? Oh, that's easy. It would be a palette of Casa Azul Reposado tequila. Well, I, I love tequila, and that's my favorite tequila. So if I'm going to be stuck on, a, on an island for the rest of my life, I think a palette of tequila would last me a long time. Jeff Lottman, owner of Fred Siegel and CEO of Global Icons, thank you so much for joining me on the Luxury Item. Best of luck. Thanks so much. I really appreciate you letting me be here. That's it for this episode of the Luxury Item Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you found this useful and entertaining, I would be really grateful if you can share it with a friend or colleague. I would love it if you subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other listeners find us. The Luxury Item Podcast is a production of Silvertone Consulting. I'm your host, Scott Kerr. Until next time.